This is an ABC podcast. The physical and emotional pain that our healthcare workers were under during the pandemic is impossible to forget. You'll remember nurses, paramedics, they were literally crying for help, the exhaustion forcing a heap of them to quit, leaving Australia massively short. G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for Hack. In a bit, we're going to get into this Victorian government plan to make it free to study nursing and midwifery to try to get more young people into those jobs. Will it work? Would you become a nurse or a midwife if the government picked up the tab? Also coming up, why a bunch of high school students walked out of a consent class. But first... Hack. To be six months on and to have people still asking questions about where they go for accommodation or what their options are, it's really concerning. On Triple J. It's been six months since catastrophic floods hit the east coast of Australia. At the time, the message for locals in places like Lismore in northern New South Wales was clear. We will not forget you. But half a year on, many do feel like they've been forgotten. They're still struggling to reassemble their lives. Even though the floodwaters have disappeared, the devastation's still all around them. You can feel it in the communities. Maybe you're one of those that's still struggling to rebuild after the floods. How are you doing? Let me know. 0439 757 well, you'll remember our reporter Ellie Grounds toured the Northern Rivers region six months ago as residents were still trying to come to terms with the full scale of what had happened. She's gone back to check in with those that she met six months ago. Hello. Hey. I'm good. How are you? Good. Thankfully just got over. Let me take my shoes off. The last time I saw Talisha in person was in early March. We were outside her dad's house in South Lismore and the street looked like the set of a disaster movie. It had been a week since the worst flood in recorded history had smashed the Northern Rivers region. Houses had been destroyed, everywhere you looked there was mud, and people's whole lives, all their belongings, had been tossed out onto street after street. The night of the flood, Talisha and her partner John had woken up to water in the house at about 3am. She reckons there was a river flowing in her dad's room and they then spent the next eight or nine hours waiting to be rescued. And how have you been going the last few months? Yeah, look, not too, not too good. And, you know, I've been very anxious and my anxiety's been playing up. You know, we've had a bit of rain lately and it's been a bit scary. So, yeah, but I'm, I'm getting there, slowly. These days, Talisha and John live on the other side of town in East Lismore. Well, we're in my new house that me and my partner just brought, which is out of flood zone, so that's good and relieving. This street wasn't impacted by the flood, but even though they should now be safe if another devastating event like that happens, it doesn't stop Talisha from worrying. Do you think about that night a lot? Yes, I do. I do think about the drains down the end of the street too, you know. When it did rain the other night, we, um, me and my partner did go up and check the drains, like, just because we were that paranoid, but what happens. Driving down some streets in Lismore now, things look totally normal. If it wasn't for all the flags and posters with the big red love hearts on them stuck to houses and shops on basically every street, you wouldn't clock that something had gone on here. But then you turn a corner and see a house that's still covered in brown residue with no windows, or a row of shops with the doors open but nothing inside and you realise the recovery has only just begun. Lismore was such an amazing, vibrant city and 
that heartbeat is absolutely still there. Like the resilience of the people there is amazing. Um, but seeing the damaged homes and the empty shop fronts in the CBD is, is really sad. It's devastating actually. Kiani is a social worker with a housing service in Lismore that works with women and children who have experienced domestic or family violence. She says since the flood, their organisation has been slammed. In times of stress and hardship, DV is known to increase. So our service has observed a significant upswing in people reaching out for domestic violence support. At the moment, we are supporting twice as many clients as we are actually funded to support. Kiani reckons with an increase in women seeking refuge, but now less places to actually put them, the last six months have been intense. Just having such limited options for people in the rental market. We have a huge um, issue with not having enough temporary accommodation, motels, refuges are full. Some nights, every option for emergency accommodation is full and we have women and children sleeping in cars. It's getting that bad. It's been a perfect storm really of a pre-existing housing crisis and then a catastrophic flood event. It's not just in Lismore that there's a housing shortage. Across the Northern Rivers, people are still living in tents in the shells of their houses or at caravan parks or staying with friends as they wait for responses from tradies and insurers to see if and how they can start rebuilding their lives. When I went to Korokai just before Easter, Angie and her family had just moved into a caravan they'd bought and parked in their driveway because their house was uninhabitable. Would have been about two months. It was tough with two young kids. <laughs> but we made it and we were so very thankful to get out of there. She and her partner spent pretty much every day of that two months rebuilding their house and now they're back in. Our room was first to be done, so I was like, let's just chuck the mattress in there on the floor and sleep. <laughs> it was the best sleep of my life. <laughs> They've chosen to stay and rebuild, but Angie says not everyone around here has. People in Woodburn that I've known since I was little have all sold their houses and just gone. They've lived there for their whole life, for my whole life. They've just sold it and moved. So where have they headed off to? I don't know. Either they've gone traveling, but they're not staying around here. Like Talisha, Angie says she still thinks about the night the water gushed through her town. We've had time to sit down and actually think about what has happened. Because yeah, before we didn't, we were too, too full on. Um, and it just feels like a really bad dream. But it's not. People in the Northern Rivers are going to be dealing with the rebuild and the trauma from the floods for years to come. And Talisha wants the rest of Australia to understand that. Well, look, I even had a lady come up to me at work and ask me how long ago was the flood. And, you know, it's, I'm thinking, like, how could you forget about that? It was in February. It was one of the biggest floods ever. And she just didn't get any, like, understanding of it because she wasn't from around here. So, yeah, I think it's just... It's sad that people forget, because we're never going to forget about it. Hack on Triple J. Ellie Grounds with that story. I want to get into this a bit more and talk to someone who's been covering and living this situation right from the beginning. Naomi Moran is the general manager of the Koori Mail, which is Australia's only independent Indigenous newspaper, and she's with us now. G'day, Naomi. Thanks for coming on Hack. Hi, how are you going? Jingiwella, thank you so much for having me. Like much of Lismore, your headquarters, the Koori Mail's offices were destroyed by the floods. It's been six months. How are things looking in your office now? 
Yeah, look, to be honest, we've, um, you know, obviously spent the past six months making sure that we're supporting the community as best as we can. Um, so we're actually kind of six months behind everybody else. Um, we're actually only at a point now where we're looking at, uh, you know, the damage of the building and um, and literally taking the first steps to repair our damaged building. Um, you know, we've always said our priority from the outset was to make sure that we did everything that we can to support the community to provide that flood relief recovery, um, you know, for for as long as we needed to. Um, and six months on, uh, you know, um, things are still pretty heavy in our community. And, uh, and you know, and obviously for ourselves um, as the Karee Mail, it's, um, you know, it's only now that we're taking a look at um, how we were affected and how we can get, uh, you know, our building back up and running just like everybody else. Yeah, and I mean, you were helping everyone right from the beginning with flood relief and all that sort of thing. And one of the first things that you guys did was reach out to Aboriginal communities that were cut off and isolated by floodwaters. How are people in those communities doing now? How are they coping? Yeah, obviously, you know, as an Indigenous organisation and business, uh, you know, in the connections that we have to our local communities, the Karoo Mail is owned by five um, Aboriginal organisations throughout the region uh, here of, of, of Lismore. Um, so it was really important for us to make sure that we did, uh, you know, reach out to those communities. And, uh, you know, some of those communities are still doing it very tough. Um, they were either uh, directly devastated by the floods with, uh, you know, water inundating their communities, or they were cut off by water and couldn't have access to, you know, the other towns and communities for groceries and supplies for some weeks or, um, you know, even some months, depending on the road conditions. Uh, for us, I guess, the reality is is that there's still a large portion of our um, Indigenous people that have been displaced from, from their Aboriginal communities because of the floods. I mean, you guys are local media, you're working there, but also residents. What do you think of the response from the wider community? Obviously, there was a, so much attention and coverage early on. Do locals feel like they've been abandoned? Oh, look, I think, um, you know, as, as with anything, uh, it becomes yesterday's news after a while. And, and I think we're, you know, obviously seeing that every day uh, where people are still coming down to access our flood hub and the other hubs that are in the region, accessing the kitchen because, you know, they still can't cook at home. Uh, those that have returned home to, to start building, you know, they're still not at a point where they can, you know, they're fully equipped to provide for themselves and their families at home. So things like our kitchen is still really uh, important in terms of, you know, pumping out hundreds of meals a day. Um, but even our supply bank and our food, uh, sorry, our clothing bank as well, people are still accessing the items that they need. So, um, you know, we're still working down the line around what people's needs are. And I think that's that's one of the, you know, the important things to remember is that we're not yesterday's news, that this is still happening, um, that we are still very far from, from full recovery and it's going to take months and years, you know, until people... I guess, can feel like they're at home again um, and wherever that looks like, whether it's rebuilding, uh, you know, the homes that were damaged or whether, you know, um, as mentioned in the package before, people have, you know, moved out of the area. So, um, you know, people are still desperately trying to piece together their lives after this event. We've seen inquiries into what happened, recommendations, um, a fair bit of focus on the future of communities in the Northern Rivers region. Are locals pretty united on what they want to see in the months and years ahead or is there still a lot of debate at a local level about the best way to move forward? 
Uh, I think there will always be a lot of debate, uh, you know, and sadly that's the structure of, uh, you know, these systems that are in place that, um, you know, it's it, it's always usually around what, you know, one or two people think is best instead of uh, making sure that we have, a, a, I guess, a really holistic approach around what does this look like for the recovery of people? This is about humans. This is about people and their livelihoods and their families. This is about people getting back into homes so that they can care for their elderly or, you know, care, uh, you know, for their families and raise their children. Um, what does it look like to make sure that people feel home again? And, and you know, some people are in a position um, to choose options that other people aren't. So I think... Uh, I guess what we're really kind of feeling when people talk to us about it on site at our hub is is that they need to be listened to, they need to be heard, um, they need to understand that not one size fits all and that this is actually about getting to know the families uh, individually um, and understanding I guess where they're at and what the options are for them, what's suitable for them because there's a lot of you know, um, emotional and, and mental healing that's happening throughout this. And I think the last thing um, that people, you know, want to feel like is that nobody's listening to them. And that's really important. And it's going to take a lot more community consultation and engagement to actually hear the voices of the people that have been affected and to understand what it is that, that they need to recover from this. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of that psychological trauma only becomes apparent months and years down the track. So absolutely, I'm guessing that, you know, there, there does, you know, need to be a lot of attention focused on that and locals want that. Listen, so great to hear your thoughts on all of this and, and, and get you on the program to explain it to us. Naomi Moran from the Koori Mail, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me. Take care, everyone. And we've got a message from Emily in Lismore who says, I love my town. I've been here for eight years, came here for uni. The community spirit is next level around the Northern Rivers. The town will never forget, but the rest of the country has. Hack. Do you want to keep going? No, let's go back to the party. That's how you do it. On Triple J. From next year, consent education is going to be mandatory in all schools across the country. Big step forward. But there are still massive issues with how it's taught that need to be addressed. Because just recently, some students at a Canberra high school walked out of a consent lesson because some of them were sexual assault survivors and they were really overwhelmed. They were told to come back and it's raising a lot of questions. The students are not impressed. Georgia Roberts has more. It made me feel just really invalidated because obviously, like, it is, like, a really difficult thing to talk about, especially when you've had those experiences. Minutes into a mandatory consent class at his school, Jack realised he had to leave. As a survivor of sexual assault, he pretty quickly became overwhelmed by what the visiting educator was talking about. Soon, he found himself crying in the hallway and headed to the school's quiet room. After I left, my youth coordinator took me down to the quiet room, uh, which is like usually open for people to like go there in case they need to like calm down or anything like that. And after 15 minutes or so of being in there, teachers would start coming in and being like, hey, when are you going back? Other students, some of whom Jack says were survivors themselves, also left class and joined him in the quiet room. But it wasn't the fact that they were learning about sexual assault. It's what happened next. Everyone else in the room was told that either they have to, like, go back to the talk or they will be sent home. Their parents would be called and 
to come pick them up. I think that's an issue because some people, like, don't have the option to go home. Like, if, you know, their parents don't know that these things have happened to them. Some people's parents can't know. Some people's parents are the ones actually doing it, sending them home because they get triggered in that environment. I think it's just really inconsiderate to people in that situation. Helen Cahill works with the United Nations on consent education for secondary schools. She says schools should look at situations like Jack's and treat it like a student needing to go to the sick bay. If students do choose to exit a classroom because they're finding something distressing, the appropriate proactive approach for the school is to check in on them. How are you doing? What do you need now? Do you need someone to talk to? Can we bring so-and-so in for you to talk with? Do you need to go home? Would that be a good thing for you to do? So in other words, to check in with them, just as we would check in with them if they'd just gone to the sick bay because they had an attack of gastro. Helen reckons there should be a whole school and proactive approach to consent education, which includes knowing who is coming into your classroom. With consent education, the other thing we ask schools and teachers to sensitise themselves around is the possibility that we might have in a classroom together people who are both the perpetrators and those who've been victimised in the one room. So we don't know their stories, but they do. So the possibility that the class might become an uncomfortable environment is something we should anticipate and make a plan for in case we need to deal with it. Hayley Foster is the Chief Executive Officer of Full Stop Australia, an organisation that provides support, education and advocacy in the sexual and domestic violence space. She says high school students in particular have a disproportionately high experience with sexual assault and that makes getting consent education right so important. Children and young people from the age of 15 to 19 years of age are at the highest risk of experiencing sexual assault and also at the highest risk of perpetrating it. Um, So we can't shy away as, as disturbing and shocking as those statistics are, we can't shy away from the evidence and we all have a responsibility um, to step up to the plate and make sure we have appropriate interventions in place because otherwise, you know, we're effectively failing this generation. Teach Us Consent, a movement started by activist Chanel Contos, campaigned for months to eventually secure mandatory consent education in schools. In April of this year, the formal federal government announced that would happen by 2023. A spokesperson for Federal Education Minister Jason Clare says while the decision to make consent education mandatory was federal, it's still up to states and territories to interpret the curriculum and decide which subjects they include the material within. And while the 2023 goal has been set, the Australian curriculum already has what they call age-appropriate consent and respectful relationship education. And right now, it's kind of optional. Meaning, by 2023, it will still be at the school's discretion if and how consent education is implemented. So, Jack has some advice for them when they do decide to teach consent education at any level. People need to be aware that this is, like, a very serious topic and it needs to be discussed, but it also needs to be discussed in a manner where it doesn't, like, you know, where it isn't harmful and know that like there are survivors like of any age group and I want them to be considerate of that and just really think of the damage that they are doing by making them go back into that environment when they are like evidently not okay with it. It's just a really distressing and harmful environment. Hack on Triple J. 
Georgia Roberts with that story. And remember, if that story raised any issues for you, you can always get Lifeline on 13 11 14. You can also speak to someone at 1800 Respect. Hack. Every student that enrols in a nursing degree will have their hex covered. On Triple J. Would you become a nurse or midwife if all of your study was free? because that's happening in Victoria. The Victorian government's announced it's going to cover the uni fees of more than 10,000 nursing and midwifery undergraduate courses. It's trying to deal with a big, big shortage of nurses that really became clear during the pandemic. And it's got a whole lot worse. Nurses and midwives have quit because of escalating workloads. They just couldn't deal with the situation anymore. So the latest plan's going to cover students enrolling in 2023 and 2024. Students would get about 9000 bucks over the three years of the study, then the rest will come in after they've worked in the Victorian public health system for a couple of years. Do you think this is a good idea? Are you thinking of giving it a go? If you're, like, pretty keen on this and thinking, oh, maybe I will become a nurse or a midwife now, I'm keen to hear from you. Let me know, one three hundred o triple five three six. You can message in as well, 0439 757 I want to find out what nurses in other states think about this plan as well. We're already getting heaps of messages through. Someone says, I don't know if free study is going to help much if people are still going to run into issues with working conditions, pay and staffing. Phoebe in Brisbane says, while this is obviously great, unfortunately at the moment the nursing workforce has had a lot of senior staff leave and there's not a lot of clinical knowledge in wards. This money would be better put into paying nurses currently in the industry properly so they don't leave. I want to go to someone who's studying nursing now. Ebony's on the line. G'day, Ebony. Hello. What's been your experience? So you're studying nursing right now. Yeah, yep. So I started in 2020, so just at the start of the pandemic. Um, and then I got an offer to work as a student nurse, that's called a Ruson, um, in a major regional hospital. Um, and I've been, I've done COVID testing um, and then I've moved on to the COVID ward at my hospital. So you're getting a lot of experience, but also I imagine you've been slammed over the past couple of years. Absolutely. What do you think when you hear about this plan to make, you know, the study free for future students? I think it's like, obviously it's a really good idea because it's a very um, understaffed area at the moment, but for someone who's already studying and is already working in the conditions, it doesn't really, it hasn't helped to be at all. Yeah, and um, I, I can imagine yeah. others are thinking this. We're actually getting messages through that people are saying the same thing. They're like, what, I've just been through the worst couple of years of study yeah. and work already and I feel like it's a bit of a, um, I've been a bit cheated really. Yeah, like I've, you know, stuck with it. Um, I did all the online classes, you know, and I've, when the government called out and said, you know, student nurses, if you can help, lend us a hand, I've stepped up um, and, yeah, I got one free coffee a day if I was working day shift. Oh. <laughs> so that's sort of, it's like, um, all right, no worries. Yeah, look, we're hearing this loud and clear from other people as well. Ebony, thanks so much for calling in with your experience. I appreciate that. Let's talk to somebody else now. Shay Candish is with the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association. It's the union representing those workers, and she is with us. G'day, Shay. Thanks for coming on Hack. 
Hi, thanks for having me. What do you think of this plan by the Victorian government? I mean, it's not affecting New South Wales nurses and midwives, but any thoughts on, on what's been announced? Yeah, look, I think broadly it's a good thing, but exactly as the, your listeners, you know, the callers in and the people on the text line have pointed out, um, there are real issues in relation to working conditions and pay for nurses and midwives. So uh, I think announcements and initiatives like this are great, but they're only one portion of the things we need to be considering about how we support these workforces going forward. How big of a barrier is the cost of studying for potential students? Is that something that you guys hear a lot about? Look, it's not, to be honest. The biggest barrier is really around financial support when nurses and midwives are undertaking clinical placement in hospitals. Um, we're really fortunate that we have a good number of people coming into the um, education space. You know, these are really great jobs when they're supported well. Um, but we're also projecting really big workforce shortages. So we really need to grow the volume of people that are coming into training for nursing and midwifery. So what we have now isn't really enough and incentivising people to come and do this study is going to be key. But keeping them in the workforce is actually the bigger piece. So addressing pay and working conditions, um, particularly in states like New South Wales where we don't have nurse to patient ratios, uh, that's really going to be critical to making sure that we can stop that churn, which one of your earlier texters spoke about, you know, the loss of that very experienced clinical skill um, is going to be really critical to stopping and to supporting the new nurses that end up in the system. Got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, sucks to be a nurse who studied, graduated and worked during the pandemic and still paying off a full hex debt. Let's go to another caller now. Jay is on the line. G'day, Jay. What's your experience? Well, as much as I love what the Victorian government is trying to do to support uh, nurses, I think it's really important that they fix the industry before they flood it with a bunch of other people that are new to the industry, getting those senior staff back in and even fixing industries like education that are also impacted that have got this fixed with uh, hex fees, but it's a broken industry. If that money was used to fix the industry, you would actually have more of a retention and less of a turnover of staff. Yeah, I mean, we're hearing that from some other people as well, Jay. We've got Bianca from Ngunnawal Country saying, uh, I work in education, there's a national shortage of teachers too. Incentives like this are essential to fix shortages in the medium term. For the long term, though, the problem is that these jobs are feminised labour, pay these workers more and will fix the gender pay gap as well. Jay, thanks for calling in. I appreciate your comments. I've got Shay Candish on the line uh, from the New South Wales Nurses and Mid Wives Association. Um, Shay, how severe is the nursing shortage across the country right now? I know you deal with New South Wales, but I'm sure you're hearing things from colleagues in other parts of the country. Yeah, so we know that there's a real trend, particularly in maternity services. And as an example, internationally, the World Health Organization is projecting uh, about 30 million healthcare workers shortage in the next couple of years. So it's a serious problem. Australia is not at all unique here, um, but it demonstrates why we need to really grow our own work workforce. Um, because we also can't rely upon other countries um, and migrating workers to be able to come to Australia. So um, it's really critical, I guess, would be where I end up with the whole, you know, in terms of where this, this initiative has landed. It is critical, but we have to fix those fundamental issues in relation to overwork and paying people a decent pay. And one of your text um, uh, comments about the gendered uh, pay gap and being a feminised workforce is absolutely correct.
Yeah, I mean, and we're getting heaps of messages to that effect. Just quickly, because we only have 30 seconds left, but what are the conditions like at the moment? Because people might be thinking, oh, well, it was really bad, you know, six months ago, a year ago, but they're not hearing as much about it now. Is it still really intense in hospitals? Yeah, look, I think it's deteriorated given the time that we've seen through the pandemic and more people who are feeling more burnt out that are leaving the industry is making and compounding the situation so that it's worse. Um, So we need to find ways to keep people. Like I said, it's an awesome profession when people are supported well and we need to get back to that point where we were. All right, Shay Candish from the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. Someone on the text line says, making nursing midwifery degrees free won't help our workforce for three to four years. We're lacking senior staff, not graduates. Maybe the government can make specialist programs free for our current workforce to skill them up. That was from Leah. And another person, unfortunately, the wards are full of junior staff, which puts a lot of pressure on our seniors. We need more seniors, not just more staff. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.